Howdy, folks, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Zach Larson. And I'm Kirsten Michael. We both work for the Fremont County Museum System, located in the heart of West Central Wyoming, where winding roads lead people to little towns tucked into the mountains or sprawled across, across the sagebrush deserts. As always, this episode is brought to you by Mick Pryor, a financial advisor with Edward Jones. Whether you're planning for retirement, saving for college, for children, or for grandchildren, or just trying to protect the financial future of the ones you care about the most, work with Mick to develop specific strategies that will help you achieve your goals. He can also help you monitor your progress to make sure you stay on track and determine if any adjustments need to be made. So last month, we shared the tales of agriculture in Fremont County and the struggles that came with trying to tame Wyoming's wild landscape. We talked about how the late Dubois resident Jack Anderson used his wits to outsmart Mother Nature and grow his famous garden at 6,666 feet in elevation. And we also talked about human nature leading us to build cities where cities shouldn't be built. Like, for example, in the middle of a sagebrush desert. But human ingenuity led to the creation of irrigation channels and a robust agriculture industry in Fremont County and many other parts of Wyoming. So in this month's episode, we're taking our listeners into the back country of Fremont County as we share stories of some of the historical treks museum staff have guided visitors on over the last few years. From Togety Pass to the Gas Hills and Miner's Delight, we're taking you folks all over. Uh, While most of the country is in lockdown and the other parts are in self-isolation or quarantine or just being their normal hermit selves, we figured it would be a great time to take folks on a virtual tour of Wind River Country. So what exactly does the term Wind River Country refer to? That, Wind River Basin, and the Upper Wind River Valley are phrases that we hear all the time in our social media posts and podcast episodes. The phrase Wind River Country really refers to the region immediately surrounding the Wind River and its tributaries. Really, that includes everything west of the Continental Divide in between Wind River Lake, which is up on Togety Pass, uh, the north end of Wind River Canyon, just south of Thermopolis, and Green Mountain, which is located in eastern eastern fremont county so basically wind river country is all of fremont county yes but from a marketing point of view wind river country is a much prettier and well marketable phrase than fremont county is to its residents and visitors yeah that's true and and so the wind river visitors council who is the sponsor of our adventure trek series uh, does an excellent job at promoting this this region yeah and it's so i i really do love how they weave um yellowstone and just this massive tourism uh, to Yellowstone into our Wyoming Wind River country. They're, the Wind River Visitors Council's motto or tagline is go beyond Yellowstone, which I just, I really like it because Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Park are important and, you know, impressive places to visit, but d- don't get me wrong, but Wyoming's Wind River country is, it's the crossroads where national park worthy sites and national park worthy history meet less crowds and more intimate experiences. Can I make a confession? Sure. I I grew up in Lander, and I was in my 20s before I ever visited Yellowstone. Dang. And, and I think it's a lot of because of that, because I grew up in, in Wind River Country, and I, you know, I grew up going up to Sinks Canyon or, or taking my, my Jeep up into the, the back country, and I just, you know, I've been to Yellowstone, and it is impressive, but I thought... I can see almost equally impressive sites without throngs of tourists, and it just seemed like a better way to uh, experience the outdoors to me. So 
that's, I think, kind of what the uh, Wind River Visitors Council is all about. And thanks to their sponsorship, we can offer guided tours of this region that allow people to have the amazing, unique experiences that incorporate wildlife, mountain views, and history without having to rub elbows with every tourist under the sun. And being close enough to rub elbows is something we really don't want to be doing right now. And it will probably be something we're very cognizant about for the foreseeable future, no doubt. Just what with the coronavirus and stuff going on and social distancing. Um, big crowds are probably not what a lot of people are wanting to deal with right now or for the foreseeable future. Which makes our adventure treks the primo option for when it comes to getting outside and exploring the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and Wind River country. Well, fresh air does the body good, and we have no shortage of it. Um, so at the risk of becoming one long promotional ad for why you should put Wind, River's, Wind River Country on your travel bucket list, uh, let's talk about the history and the stories of Fremont County and Wyoming through the treks that we've done in the past. So all three museums lead adventure treks from their sites out into their uh kind of neighborhoods, local regions, and some of these treks are as simple as a downtown walking tour that highlights some of the lesser known but still fascinating histories of our communities. Well, and other treks include a 10-mile round-trip hike into the backcountry of the Wind River Mountains. And then there are the treks that land somewhere in the middle, where a car ride and short hike leads you to intensely historic sites that aren't necessarily accessible to the general public. So then let's go west. Uh, so I really have to make the, say the quote, go west, young man, go west and grow up with the country. So I don't know why. It just really resonates with me, which probably isn't the best quote to resonate with because the quote is attributed to newspaper editor Horace Greeley and embodies the concept of manifest destiny, which isn't the best policy to follow. But uh, it was popular in the late mid to late 1800s, and it encouraged American Easterners to leave the dirty, corrupt eastern cities behind and populate the public lands of the West, forming them into an agrarian paradise. So April's episode about the agricultural history of Fremont County showed how hard the goal of an agrarian paradise turned out to be, especially in Dubois, where it took wrapping fruit trees in wool coats to protect them from the harsh cold and wind. Although it's interesting to note that the most lucrative industry of Dubois still relied on growing things, and that would be trees to be exact, the historical logging business put Dubois on the national map, but its modern outdoor recreational potential keeps it there. And the Fremont County Museums act as the nexus for the historic and modern stories of our communities. And honestly, between the awesome views and guided interpretation, the next thing our adventure treks offer is access. Got that right. Uh, thinking about our adventure tracks really did get me going with the whole, like, what makes these so unique? And I have to say the whole idea of access really is what it makes our adventure tracks stand out. Because not only do visitors have access to expert knowledge and access to locations, but our museums work really hard to maintain relationships with community members who possess expert knowledge. They can volunteer to supplement the museum's information, as well as we maintain relationships with community members who own private properties that encompass historically significant stories. And one of my all-time favorite treks, like, don't, I could go on and on about all my treks, but one of my all-time favorite treks came from combining museum staff experience on the tie hacking industry and an awesome connection with the community members. So which trek was that, and why did it stick out for you? So the trek I'm referring to was the Warm Springs tie hack trek that my boss Johanna and I led in July 2019. Uh, so it was about it was a little less than a year ago at this point. Um, but what made this trek really stand out was getting permission from the owner of the Wagon Box Ranch to access their property for this trek. And the Wagon Box Ranch, located just west of the town of Dubois, boasts some of the best, like, oh my gosh, 
absolutely best preserved flume structures that tie hacks used to transport cut railroad ties between 1928 and 1942. Plus, the ranch's homesteading history is incredibly rich and really well preserved too, so getting permission to take trek participants on that property is something that, I mean, it was really exciting and unique for the visitors, but it was super exciting and unique for staff as well. And so, Johanna and I To set this up, like I said, museums have to maintain relationships with our community members, not just because we rely on our community, but also we shelter our community's history Mm -hmm. and um, we're here for our community. But it really helps us because we were able to reach out to a community member who we knew owned this property and they allowed us to come and do a reconnaissance trek, uh, just Johanna and me, to the property a few weeks prior to the official trek day where the ranch manager led us around the property and helped us pick out locations and structures to highlight during the trek. And mind you, this property is currently it's a few hundred acres big, but the history and the original homestead and branch were like a few thousand acres big. So it was a lot of space, a lot of things to look at. Um, But so we had to really kind of condense it down because as much as we would have liked to have stayed out there all day, we couldn't. Um, so the flumes on the property were a no-brainer to include in our interpretation, but the old tie hat cabin, the bubbling warm springs, bath pools, and flume telephone pole were added points of interest we decided to include. The flume had telephone poles? Yeah, the warm spring flume, which uh, was, uh, I want to say, nine miles long, not including all the branch flumes that connected to it, had a catwalk along its entire length that tie hacks would walk on as they kept an eye on flume operations. And they needed to look... Uh, keep a lookout for breaks in the flume, log jams, and other emergencies that would require the workers up at the head gate at the start of the flume to stop sending ties down. Uh, telephones installed along the catwalk helped with communications because it was a lot easier to just dial the top phone and be like, hey, stop, we have a blowout, rather than have to run the nine miles or climb the nine miles up to the top. And between running and walking the nine miles, you would have lost potentially thousands of ties out of the flume. So the telephone system was really important. And yeah, one of the uh, only remaining flume telephone poles that we know of in all of the Wind River country uh, is standing on this private property that we were allowed to go see. That's uh, that's amazing. The whole time you're talking about catwalks, I just kept thinking about right said Fred doing his little turn on the catwalk. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you're too young anyway. Oh, bull. Well, Um, I mean, it's very similar to that. I mean, these were not, you know, big, wide, open boards that the tie hacks were walking on. This was, you know, maybe a foot wide uh, plank uh, at the best of places that were potentially suspended from like cave roofs or cliff faces. So it definitely Mm. took some iron guts to do that job. Yeah, seriously. So uh, fast forward to July 9th, um, you arrive at the ranch, you park in the designated areas, you get out your hiking bags and you start off. What's the first thing you see? So for a little ways, we follow along a trail next to the ranch's original irrigation canal that split off from the Warm Warm Spring Creek. And pretty soon, this whole trek was really was not that long in distance, but it was long in historical interpretation. Um, So pretty soon we got to the first stop where everyone on the trek was enthralled by the section of incredibly intact flume they're seeing. Mind you, this huge wooden structure is still 40 feet above our heads and attached to the side of a cliff but it's it's still massive and it's still incredibly Mm. impressive and between the cars and the section of the flume we've probably only walked about a fifth of a mile along a grassy trail um, freshly mowed by the ranch manager when johanna and i did the reconnaissance trek it was grass up to our knees on this trail um 
but we managed to get through it. And then so on the day of trek, it was actually nice and mowed. Thank you, Mr. Ranch Manager. Um, but so we'd nice. walked about a fifth of a mile and we're seeing just a small section of this mass of trestles and poles and lumber that make up this transportation system. But even this small section hinted at this almost miraculous feat of engineering that was the Warm Spring Flume system. But it was just the beginning, so our group moved on, and as we did, Johanna and I really start to dive further into the history of the flumes with our trek guests. And about a half mile into the trek, we come up on a point in the trail where one side overlooks the bubbling Warm Spring Creek, and the other side uh, of the trail begins to wind up a steep hill. And we stop there because it's a really pretty area. You can see this rocky cliff, um, which is where the Warm Springs kind of curves around, and right at the bottom of the rocky cliff... It's some hard, sometimes hard to see if the water is too high, but the water is kind of low at this time. But you could see like this pool of bubbling water in like the edge of this creek. And so that was actually, that's where one of the warm springs, warm springs was bubbling up. And according to the ranch manager, the Hacks actually used to use this bubbling warm springs bath area um, to wash clothes, to wash themselves. There used to be a dam that they built that helped make the warm spring pool deeper that they would go swimming in and stuff like that. Um, So it was this really cool area on the trail that we got to see like this warm spring, which is what gives warm spring Creek its names um, is the thermal activity around it. So after Johanna Mm -hmm. gives a brief history of the natural thermal springs that give warm springs its name, our group turns to walk up the hill. And so about halfway up, we encounter the flume. And so I don't know if you can imagine this, but like imagine trudging up this hill, not a, not a not steep hill. And then suddenly you encounter this giant wooden, like, worm that's what we kind of refer to it it was just this thing that was winding through the trees winding along this cliffside and suddenly you were right there next to it and so a section of the flume maybe about four feet wide had been removed for the trail to go to cut across um so we that's how we filed through it otherwise you'd have to like climb over it and that's highly disadvised um and so mm-hmm. it was really cool to be up close and personal with the flume it's it's a v-shaped kind of thing so it's like a trough um v-shaped flume we pass is about five feet wide at the top so again it's it's not a small structure um raw rough sod overlapping boards formed the sides of the flume which were secured to heavy plank bottoms by giant six inch nails where most of them had been bought and mass and shipped to the Warm Springs flume construction site, but some of them actually were handmade by the blacksmith of the tie hacks. So that was hmm. really cool to see. Um, and when filled with the water, this monster flume could hold up to four ties side by side. So it's just, it's really impressive to think ties themselves are not, yeah. they're not light things. They're these eight foot by no. eight inches, kind of very large objects and then you have four of them or multiple of them in this flume then you have enough water in these flumes to carry these big ties down you know a a canyon so these had to be this was a really sturdy structure and of course curiosity gets the best of some people and people reach out to touch the flume until i as a collection manager say wait no stop don't um (laughs) which is really hard to do because i myself want to touch the stuff too but mm-hmm. um, we didn't want to contribute to the flume's demise, even if we just maybe poked it a little or we wanted to just poke it, which is what a lot of people argue saying. I'm just going to touch it lightly. But I'm like, even the lightest thing helps um, or it might hurt the historic artifact, which is 
Yeah. I mean, in the scheme of things, a finger isn't going to be that big of a difference than like a snowstorm that this thing survives. But again, we didn't want to contribute to the flume's demise. Although, like I said, as we walked further along, the flume's ultimate fate became really obvious to us. Um, The flume is worse off than our view from the bottom of the valley originally hinted at. That's not really that surprising. You know, wooden structures aren't known to be the longest lasting structures built. Yeah, even some stone and brick buildings aren't the most sturdy things. You would know because you live in the Riverton Museum. Well, you don't live there, but you work there and even that has its... (laughs) Sometimes it feels like... Right? Sometimes it does feel like that. So, as museum professionals... We are very much understanding with this whole dozen, with old wooden buildings not being permanent. Um, And I definitely know Mm -hmm. that, what with our dozens of old wooden buildings on the museum's property, the Dubois Museum's property. Um, But still, the Warm Springs Flume is actually younger than at least two of the cabins the Dubois Museum maintains, but it's in way worse shape. So imagine you're standing not two feet away from this flume, Uh, It's hard to miss the damage, though. Railroad ties once traveled up to 50 miles an hour down this flume, which calculate all those like numbers out. You delivered about 4,000 ties an hour to the banks of the Wind River, but this flume wasn't carrying anything right now because the once flat wooden boards were warped and dried and cracked from, I mean, it was just from the relentless relentlessness of time and water while entire chunks of the system have actually collapsed into unidentical pieces of wood. It's, it's real sad to see, to kind of wonder um, of how this would have actually been working, how it would have seemed like in its heyday, but it was interesting to walk through. Um, we had to be careful though, as we navigated a trail that was once, I mean, you had to worry about rocks and stuff, but suddenly this trail included obstacles from everything like six inch nails sticking out of boards to rusted out wood stoves. Nails. Yeah, that makes sense. Wood stoves. Did they uh, try to send a wood stove down the flume? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I don't actually know half the things the tie hacks got up to, but the wood stove was not, did not end up where it did because of this flume. There was actually an old tie hack cabin located just up the hillside from where the stove lay now. And the ranch manager told us that Someone at some point probably tried to either steal the stove from the old cabin, relocate it, or just decide to see what happens when you push a large metal object down a hill for it to end up in a pile next to the flume. Well, and not that I uh, encourage that behavior at all, because I definitely don't, but as a boy, I get the impulse to push large, heavy objects down hills. I think... It is a tremendously satisfying thing once in a while to do. I mean... Not stoves and not into historic artifacts, but... Understandable. I think there might just be a little part of humanity that's prone to destructiveness. So constructive destructiveness, mm-hmm. is, I think, is a healthy outlet. Unfortunately, yeah. the there was no constructive de- destructiveness about this poor stove um, no. that rolled down a hill. But yeah, it was it was still really cool to see. And the story of that of how it got there, which we don't actually know if that's how it got there, is it's just part of the mystery right. of history. So tell us about that cabin. So we had to hike up the hill a little more and normally we could have actually gone farther on the property and the property actually butts up against forest service property, um, which would have brought us onto public land. And there are some flume pieces that you can see while standing on forest service property. 
um, which, you know, I highly advise everybody should go and experience the history of the Wind River Valley for sure. Um, but we actually decided to change because of this cabin, because we knew if we kind of like hooked around on the trail, we would be able to see this cabin. So, and like most of our Trek participants, I love me some historic dilapidated buildings. So unfortunately, but not surprisingly, not much of left is left of this cabin. Um, its roof is long gone and the walls are starting to collapse, but the north side still stands about chest high. Um, the logs have long since turned gray with age and dried and cracked and things like that. And there's a little cellar right next to the main cabin that has a roof of flat boards, but dirt is slowly filling it in too, which is, again, time is relentless. Um, but that's actually where we stopped and ate mm-hmm. lunch. Uh, we sat in the presence of a cabin whose walls, though weak and dilapidated now, once stood strong enough to shelter the men who built the massive record-breaking flume system in the Warm Springs Canyon watershed. And then after lunch, which, you know, is bagged sandwiches and chips and things like that, and after we made sure we left no trace... Make sure you leave no trace, people, if you go, if it's private property Mm -hmm. or public property. uh, Just always make sure to clean up after yourself. But after lunch, we made our way back to the cars, briefly stopping to talk more about the Wagon Box Ranch's history, which began in 1916 with Nob and Ina Harrison, uh, who bought the property. And the property also boasted the first hydroelectric plant in the valley. Fun fact. Um, And then we head back into town. I wish I would have been on that one. Uh, how long was it? Um, time-wise or distance? Do both. Uh, so it took us about four and a half hours to hike about two miles round trip, uh, which sounds like a really long time to walk, walk only two miles. Uh, but it took us that long because we stopped and talked about the history in different locations along the way rather than it just being like a hard hike. Um, and on the contrary, it was mm-hmm. a really wonderful hike. It was a really wonderful, relatively easy trek. There were some steep parts, but we had people of all ages um, between like, ages 24 and like 78 on this trek and nobody had a problem um yeah we had 16 participants and the weather cooperated beautifully Uh, the clear skies and green leaves of early summer really made the mountains trees and cliffs surrounding warm springs canyon into a into a postcard worthy scene yeah no no kidding and you know somebody who like me is really into like the industrial history of everything just that that engineering ingenuity of those kind of that industrial era stuff i i'm gonna have to go next if you guys do that trick again i'm gonna have to go because that just sounds like something that needs to be seen Uh, it was Um, awesome well postcard worthy scenes abound in wyoming's wind river country and uh if you don't believe us look at our facebook and instagram pages they're full of photos of of whatever of all sorts of postcard worthy scenes all kinds of things and since my descriptions might have fallen short for this trek i'll make sure to share images of the things i talked about just now on our facebook page the tyhack cabin the flume the canyon and everything i've just said um you can see them all on our facebook page we discover the winds also in case people are worried that the only history dubois has to offer is tyhack related uh, it is a lot of tie hack, but it's not all we do. Uh, I'm going to give a quick shout out to some mm-hmm. of the other awesome treks I've helped lead over the last two years, which include the Mountain Shoshone archaeology treks we lead through places like Torrey Valley, which showcase ancient sheep traps, hunting blinds, petroglyphs. Um, and then another really awesome trek we did uh, was the 75th anniversary bomber crash trek that I helped lead in August 2018, which shows some of the prettiest mountain scenes, as well as the most tragic mystery of our valley. So you mentioned a bomber crash and you just kind of move on from that. You got to tell us something about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is something to just kind of drop and then walk away. But um, it's really, I loved learning about the bomber (laughs) crash, which is 
odd to say when it really was kind of a sad occurrence. Um, uh, but the trek we did, it was about a 10 and a half mile round trip hike and took about 10 and a half hours to do and had an elevation gain of over 2000 feet. It was beautiful, gorgeous. You, I mean, you really, you're getting into the Wind River Mountains this way. Well, you're getting a little ways in the Wind River Mountains. True backcountry backpackers are probably like, oh, that's nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm not a backcountry backpacker, so that this was intense. Um, but it was beautiful and challenging, uh, which we knew our visitors would be interested in. But it was also our way to commemorate and honor the 75th anniversary of a B-24 bomber, which crashed into the Wind River Mountains in 18... No, not 18. 1943. Um, and it killed 11 <laughs> men who were enlisted in the U.S. military for World War II. Um, and really, this crash brought World War II to the doorsteps of Dubois in a way no one really expected. But I've already talked too long about the treks that the Dubois Museum leads, and maybe we'll save a more in-depth look at the bomber crash of August 1943 for another episode. For now, it's somebody else's turn. And when I say somebody else's turn, I mean it's your turn to talk. Well, as as our listeners may be aware, um, the Riverton Museum is becoming more and more focused on agricultural and industrial history of the Wind River Valley. That's really, those are the things that made Riverton into the city that it is now. And... Uh, so we're focusing a lot more on that. And I have two treks that I want to just briefly talk about. One is the reason, one, one of the treks highlights the reason that Riverton as a town even exists. And uh, the other reason, the other trek highlights the reason that Riverton became the commercial center of Fremont County. So in July, this is our first one that we have, not our first trek, but the first one we're talking about right now. We will be joined by staff of the Midville Irrigation District. And we'll look at a series of projects that brought irrigation water into the Riverton area. We're going to start up at the Bull Lake Dam, which created a deeper reservoir out of the already existing Bull Lake. Then we'll head to Diversion Dam. And I love saying a lot of things about a lot of dam projects. And I think that Diversion Dam is one of the most interesting dam projects that we have in in the county. Um, Most interesting dam projects. Tell me what you usually... Sorry. Interesting dam projects. What What do you usually think of when you hear about a dam? Uh... Like, just describe what it does. Well, it stops water, and I usually think of it being concrete. Okay, well, and some of those things are true, but the diversion dam is unique in that it doesn't have a reservoir behind it. Like the name suggests, it diverts water. So most of the water that passes over or through the diversion dam just keeps on going right through the, right into the Wind River. Uh, but it basically it skims a portion of it off and diverts it into a canal, and that canal ends up behind another dam at the Pilot Butte Reservoir. So huh. I've, I've never actually thought about that because I've seen Diversion Dam and I've seen pictures like old pictures and modern pictures of Diversion Dam. And I'm like, huh, I've never put two and two together. But yeah, there's no reservoir. Yeah. And it's it's one of my absolute favorite places in the county that's especially that's so easily accessible. You can drive right up to it. Um, and in fact, for roughly three decades, everybody that came this way drove over it because it acted as the bridge on the highway between... Riverton and Lander and and Dubois. So um, it has the distinction of being the first ever vehicular truss bridge to be incorporated into a dam structure. So it's a dam bridge. Dam bridge. And uh, it's also the longest road truss bridge in Wyoming, whether or not that road truss bridge is a dam. And it's also, uh, it also consists of eight trusses, which makes it the bridge that has more trusses than any other truss bridge in the state. So... That makes it a long damn truss dam bridge. 
or something like that. Are we allowed to say damn so much? <laughs> if this was YouTube, we'd get demonetized maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's it's in the it's in the context we're talking about. The, it's it's D-A-M damn. <laughs> right? Yeah. Most of the That's time. That's the damn I'm using. I don't know what damn, um, damn you're using. <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry. I'm done. I'll be quiet. Uh, okay. So... So after that, we're going to actually head on down to the Pilot Butte Reservoir. We'll be looking at, um, you know, one of the things that you can do with falling water and with dams and stuff is you can generate electricity. So we'll be checking out the Pilot Butte Power Station, which to this day uh, does generate some hydroelectric power that it puts into the grid in this in this area. So even though Riverton was open for white settlement clear back in 1906, these irrigations these irrigation projects weren't really completed until the 20s. We talked a little bit about this on, I think it was just our last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's because of these projects that Riverton actually kind of became a bright spot during the Great Depression. And without these projects, it's pretty safe to say that Riverton wouldn't exist, at least not in the way that it is, um, without the irrigation project. So that's, that is the trek to the the area that makes Riverton a town. So, next project is the one that made Riverton into the commercial center of Fremont County. So, in September, almost to the day, we'll, we're going to be commemorating the discovery of uranium in the Gas Hills. And as anybody who's heard me talk about anything for more than about three <laughs> seconds knows, it's, it's apparently my very favorite thing to talk about in the world. Um, uranium in the Gas Hills was discovered by Neil and Maxine McNeese. Uh, with the help of their partner Lowell Moorfeld in September on the 13th of 1953. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, beautiful Wyoming sun, summer Sunday, late summer. Um, and and they went out there just like the entire country was doing at that time, amateur prospecting with their Geiger counters. Uh, that very Geiger counter is part of our uranium industry display. So come by and check it out. But it's a really, really important part of, of this area's history. So we got a lot of a lot of places that I think a lot of people don't really know about that still have a uranium legacy that we're going to go visit. So one of the first things that we're going to do is um, a head frame from one of the uranium mines south of Jeffrey City is has been relocated, was relocated in the early 2000s to the U.S. Energy Building. So we're going to check that out. We'll talk about the legacy of uranium mining on Riverton. Wait, wait, hang on. So is that that big contraption that's standing outside the U.S. Energy Building? Yeah. Yeah, that was a head frame for an underground uranium mine. What? I just thought it was modern art, honestly. Well, it's beautiful. It really is. I think. That's so cool. I I learned something. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's just really awesome to learn. No, that's great. Um, And in fact, it it was actually brought there to commemorate... uh, I'm going to butcher the quote a little bit, but it was to commemorate the past, present, and future uranium workers of Fremont County. So, you know, kind of a touching tribute to a really important industry. Um, And then there is a sulfuric acid plant just south of town. We'll kind of drive right by that. We'll talk about it. That plant is the place of Wyoming's first uranium ore buying station that the Atomic Energy Commission ran basically for about a year and a half or two years before that opened as a buying station all of wyoming's uranium ore was trucked either to south dakota or salt lake city to be processed so long way to haul it really Uh, but it came there and then it was presumably chucked on the railroad and then some years later that area was converted into a to a uranium mill and then after that we're going to head off on the gas hills road we'll talk about the history of that road because 
as boring as it may sound to be a, to have a history about a highway, uh, the Gas Hills Road has a lot of interesting history. We're going to see a lot of great stuff in the Gas Hills. We are going to go to the uh, we're going to go to the place where the uranium discovery originally occurred. We're going to see the nearby Lucky Mac Mill site. We're going to head north to the northern end of the Gas Hills where the Union Carbide Umetco Mill site was. There nearby that is a a massive, massive building and one of the few structures that still is in the Gas Hills. It's a Federal American Partners Carroll Shop. I don't think we'll be able to go inside of it, but I'm going to see if I can contact some people. Maybe we can. I doubt it, but it would be cool if we could. It's huge. <laughs> um, it was a, basically a workshop to maintain these massive mining equipment that Federal American Partners ran out there. Um, there's also nearby that you can see them on Google Earth, and, and maybe we'll put a, a picture of that on our Facebook. There are some interesting boulder creations that some reclamation crews put together. They had all these boulders as part of the reclamation process, and they just, instead of piling them in a pile, they uh, made some things. They made those into modern so, art? Yeah, those are, it really is. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. So we'll go check those out. Um, we're going to head south to where the Federal American Partners... Um, town site was it's where they had their they had a few site built houses and a lot of uh mobile homes that's where we're gonna have a picnic lunch that is that that site's one of the few places i mean you can kind of tell that people used to live out there (laughs) there's still some trees growing out there it's almost like a little park in the middle um, of nowhere in the middle of nowhere so we'll have lunch out there we'll head down south we'll check out jeffrey city and some of the western nuclear mine sites on green mountain um, as well as there's a Lucky Mac mine site down there as well. Um, we've got the Split Rock Cafe in Jeffrey City ready to have us for dinner, which our participants will have to buy. We're not buying dinner for everybody. Sorry. Good to clarify. Um, it's going to be a marathon. It's going to be an all-day trek, but it's going to be really fun to be in in these areas that, that basically uranium built. So, yeah, that's um, that's our big trek coming up in September, and we're really excited about that one. That does sound really cool. Yeah. So we've we've gone in, into the mountains outside of Dubois. We've gone around Riverton and out into the sagebrush desert on the very, very eastern edge of Wind River Country. And now it's time to head over to Lander and the Fremont County Pioneer Museum. So with Sinks Canyon and historic al- apple orchards just outside the door, they also have some amazing treks. Yeah. And like I was saying earlier, I haven't actually been on any of their treks, but I have talked to Randy and talked to people who have been on their treks. And I've actually visited some of their trek destinations, just not on a trek with them. Um, And Mm -hmm. some of the cool, one of my favorites, though, that I was reading about and talking about um, is, once again, has to relies on unique partnerships. And this uh, trek that I really like and I'm going to talk about we're we're going to talk about um, is the Avetcher trek led by the Fremont County Pioneer Museum to the Sweetwater Mining District which is south-ish of Lander I guess um, the South yeah. Sweetwater Mining District encompasses parts of the southernmost part of Fremont County like it was so southern or it is so southern that it was once part of another county. Um, and it includes places like South Pass City, Atlantic City, and the gold mining ghost town of Miner's Delight. Well, normally South Pass City falls under the jurisdiction of Wyoming State Historic Sites, and Atlantic City boasts its own historical society and Miner's Delights on BLM land. 
But Randy Wise, who's the site manager at the Pioneer Museum, he's been a guest on this podcast a couple of times, um, and his staff collaborate with these different entities to create adventure treks. So in June 2018, so this is a few years back, the Fremont County Pioneer Museum led an adventure trek to the gold mining ghost town of Miner's Delight, originally called Hamilton City. And its name changed to Miner's Delight in 1868 after miners discovered a particularly productive gold mine there. Uh, We don't actually know why it was called Hamilton City to begin with, uh, but it was the third city. They just really liked the musical. (laughs) They had the foresight to imagine it. Maybe they were. They could have been really big fans of um, Alexander Hamilton. Um, He wasn't gone that many decades after this, but... Nope. Yeah, so this the Hamilton City was the third city of the Sweetwater Mining District. It was preceded by South Pass City and Atlantic City and was started by J- Jack Hallbrook. Sorry, I had to remember how to pronounce his name. Hallbrook named the original camp slash town site Hamilton City. Again, we don't know why it was called Hamilton City. It's highly debated. There's no super strong records to say, but we do know that it changed its name to Miner's Delight soon after. Well, the town's population peaked at a whopping 100 occupants that same year, but by 1880, it was mostly abandoned. Holbrook, the town's founder and one of the owners of the lucrative Miner's Delight, found it more profitable to work in Denver as a freighter than to continue to extract gold from the Sweetwater Mining District. Unlike many places in, say, California or Alaska, the gold in the Sweetwater Mining District was much more expensive to recover than it was worth. So Miner's Delight would go through a few phases of opening for operation and then closing down again and opening and closing. And, you know, it's it's the traditional boom and bust cycle most gold towns experienced um, until town permanently, permanently closed down in the 1970s when the last resident left. And like we said, the BLM now manages the land and the ghost town sits on it. Um to get to this town, you leave Highway 28 and you travel across dirt roads. And it's honestly easier to fi- to it's easier to find Miner's Delight if you make Atlantic City your destination in your GPS than and then from Atlantic City head northeast on Atlantic City Road um, before turning right onto Fort Sta- Stambaugh. Man, I can never pronounce this fort's name. Um, Stambaugh loop road and following it to the graveyard at the end of the loop you follow the road until you reach the graveyard that sounds like a not at all like the beginning of a horror movie yeah yeah i mean what ghost town is complete without an eerie old graveyard miner's delight is no different uh the creepy dirt road to drive down that ends in a graveyard yeah that's that's pretty much the ghost town experience i want but the graveyard is where the trek really begins and only a few gravestones are visible through the grasses and sagebrush a wooden fence like a split rail wooden fence surrounds the plots. And then inside that split wooden rail fence is a metal fence that surrounds the gravestone of Anna Anderton, a 38-year-old female resident who died in 1875. That's all we know. That's all her gravestone says. Wow. Well, very likely that she was one of like two or three female residents of Miner's Delight. Yes. I mean, I'm just speculating. I don't actually know that. There but. is some, I can't remember the guy's name, but there's actually a written record of somebody who lived at Miner's Delight. And he did, he took out a significant chunk of his diary or whatever to write about the women in Miner's Delight. And according to him, there was three <laughs> and none of them were great looking, apparently. Maybe Anna Anderton would beg to differ, mm. but well, I guess we'll never nope. know. 
So anyway, once people finish circling the small graveyard and contemplating how Anna died, or who else might be buried unmarked in that cemetery, people can walk down a dirt trail that leads downhill to a closed gate. The gate is unlocked and easy enough to open and close, and then you find yourself at the beginning of a trail that curves through an, uh, the abandoned ghost town. So, yeah, you go through the gate. There's some nice interpretive signs on the side of the path that the BLM put in and maintains. It kind of gives you some background, which is how I found Miner's Delight. Like I said, I I haven't actually taken the trek with the museum there, which I really would like to because the museum tracks add so much more context and information and stuff. And so mm-hmm. I only know, I only found out about Miner's Delight after leaving and Googling it because I was on a like a backcountry road exploration trip with my then fiance, now husband. And we, we first of all, we thought we were lost. And then suddenly we come upon this graveyard and then we're like, oh, this is something to go through. So we walk down this trail. We look at the interpretation. We're like, oh, okay, this is we're allowed to be here, which is always important to check if you are allowed to be somewhere. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we go down this hill through the gate, and then you just, like, the trail kind of opens up onto this marshy pond area. Um, and so, and, but then you see some old cabins in the, in the foreground. And an article in July 1868 edition of Sweetwater Mines newspaper describes the town as the following. Some 30 buildings are up and more in course of construction. Spring Gulch is turning out the bright ore in comfortable quantities. 10 companies are at work in Spring Gulch. Well, now only 17 structures still exist on the town site, and the only permanent occupants are a family of beavers who call the nearby ponds home. So, fun story. When my husband and I were walking across this bridge over the ponds, a little furry creature scurried across the boardwalk and I screamed bloody murder (laughs) and my husband then yelled bloody murder because I was screaming bloody murder and if there were any other wild creatures in the area or people for that matter they would have been you know scared off for sure Um, it was not my proudest moment but it really does go to show that the really only permanent residents of this area are birds and the beavers Mm -hmm. and I don't know what it is about old decrepit buildings but something deep down inside of me resonates with them Um, and there's this quote and I love this quote I guess I'm full of quotes today um, from Doctor Who which is the BBC series of a time traveling person Um, and the quote is I love old things they make me sad which is happy for deep people and I find it incredibly accurate as a historian and a museum professional and I really loved walking along the trail and staring at the old cabins the saloon and other structures left behind in miners delight and many of the buildings actually have helpful interpretive signs that give some backward background about who lived there when and what the building was used for um like we said the town was only abandoned in the 1970s so there were people living there so there are some random modern amenities like there's an old refrigerator one of the cabins (laughs) um there's wood stoves Hmm. because that's a thing everywhere in wyoming um there's a two-seater lab uh outhouse which is always fun to look at (laughs) and wonder about that's luxury i don't none of the bathrooms in my house have two seats in them so (laughs) you know that's pretty pretty modern it's funny to see all these people that are like you know making youtube money out of my off-grid cabin and these dudes were Mm -hmm. i mean we only really stopped doing that for like maybe not even at all but maybe for like 20 or 30 years and now we're like some people are going back to that I don't know. It just goes to show that the past is always repeating itself. That's right. And some people are just capitalizing on it better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish I had a good chunk of that YouTube dough. That would be nice. Anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, Miner's Delight is located on a lower spot of land surrounded on all sides by gulches where the mining took place. So Yankee Gulch is to the northeast and Spring Gulch, where, you know, mentioned in the article, uh, 
where gold was first discovered in the area in 1867, is to the east with a steep rocky cliffs named Beaver Buttes visible looming over it. Finally, Peabody Gulch, in which the original Miner's Delight mine was located, is west of town. So, like most parts of the Wind River country, Miner's Delight is a gorgeous, fascinating, and, dare I say it, delightful setting to find yourself in. Agreed. So, hopefully we've managed to convince you to put Wind River Country on your travel list. I know a lot of our listeners just live right here. Um, so, get out and explore. That's something or you can do. tell other even... people to get out and explore. You know, yeah. when traveling is allowed again. Right. And uh, even if you're coming from afar, it's worthwhile to check out Wind River Country. And if, that, if, if we haven't convinced you, then probably nothing will. So... Yeah, gorgeous views, enthralling history, opportunities for intimate experiences with both that you wouldn't find anywhere in Yellowstone without having to backpack into the backcountry for. So seriously, these treks that we talked about today are only a fraction of what we actually do every summer. So if you want more information, call us or message us with your questions. Uh, If you want to plan a personal guided tour of Wind River Country with museum staff, we also do those. So... With that, we want to thank you for being here through this episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. Don't worry, we have several more podcast episodes planned for you guys. Next month, we're taking a look at the history of medical treatment, doctors, hospitals, and home remedies in Fremont County. And especially now, this topic seems to hit closer to home than usual, so we actually scheduled out this year's episodes back in January. We didn't foresee just how relevant the history of medicine in Fremont County was going to become. Right now, the world is struggling to cope with and recover from the coronavirus uh, COVID-19 pandemic. But right at this very moment, experts are learning learning a lot by looking at the history of medicine and treatment, disease spread, and recovery patterns. Um, So we're diving into the history of medicine in Fremont County in the American West next month. And I will also just throw in that I am working on a video for our YouTube channel that's about the Spanish flu in Fremont County. So if this podcast is out before that, make sure to check that out or I'm, I guess either way, watch our YouTube channel and, and check that video out when it drops. Yeah, so if you liked what you heard today, go like us on Facebook at Rediscover the Winds or find us on YouTube. Uh, make sure you describe, you subscribe to our channel on Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify. Check us out on 10Cast, County 10's Podcast Network. You know, do all those things and listen to the rest of our podcast episodes. So if you've already followed us on those platforms, thank you. Your support means the world to us. And we hope you get the chance to visit our museums and someday attend some of our museum events. Which may or may not be happening this year. We're we're fingers crossed. We're still hoping for a summer. We know plans and events are being canceled and are rescheduled due to the ongoing health crisis. But like I said, the Fremont County Museums are hopeful that summer will bring warmer weather, better health, and loads of opportunities to engage with history. As of right now, the following events are still on our schedule. They might change. They might not. Um, We'll keep you posted from our Facebook pages or newsletter updates. So uh, why don't you tell us about the Dubois Museum? So one of a really exciting event that we're hosting on May 7th is part of the Wyoming Community Bank sponsors, our Wyoming Community Bank sponsored Discovery Speaker Series, which are all free and open to the public, mind you, um, is Sasquatch in the Yellowstone Ecosystem. May 7th, 7 o'clock, Denison Lodge. John Mayanzinski, a Fremont County local and respected ethnobotanist, uh, naturalist, wildlife consultant, musician, 
pretty much a jack of all trades. Um, he's a wildlife biologist for the North American Ape Project based out of Idaho State University Anthropology Department. And since 1998, his job has been to catalog and follow up on sightings, tracks on the ground, family stories, and tribal histories of past encounters with the mysterious creature known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. So you should all come to the Dubois Museum on May 7th if we still have this event and hear mm-hmm. about Sasquatch in the Yellowstone ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's one that's not to be missed. Well, uh, the Pioneer Museum in Lander, also on May 7th at 7 p.m., is hosting Clint Saunders um, with a talk entitled Images That Shaped America. So you've heard the saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. What about the story behind famous photos? Journalist Clint Saunders takes us behind the scenes of famous and infamous Vietnam-era images. Uh, that's another one that's just going to be amazing. So if you're close to Lander, check that one out um, on May 7th again at 7 p.m. And then on May 21st here at the Riverton Museum, we have, uh, well, we're going to do talk about Frenchy Draw History. Frenchy Draw is the name given to a desolate stretch of sagebrush off US 26 near the Fremont Natrona County border. Uh, attempts have been made to homestead the area, but they were unsuccessful. And we're going to, um, today, Frenchy Draw is home of natural gas exploration and cattle ranching and not a heck of a lot else. But Rob <laughs> Hendry, whose family's been ranching in Wyoming for generations, is going to tell us about the history of the homestead experiments in that area. Um, talk about why these experiments fail. So this dovetails with a lot of our agricultural-based episodes that we've been having lately. And um, like I said, Rob has been in that area forever. Um, great speaker. It's going to be a really interesting talk. And again, that's at 6.30 on May 21st. And so the Pioneer Museum is having a- another Wyoming Bank sponsored Discovery Speaker Series on June 4th at 7 p.m., John Wagner and I-80 Wyoming's Snow Chi Min Trail. So John <laughs> is an author of the popular book, what? What are you giggling at? Snow Chi Min. That's just funny. Oh, yes, it is quite humorous. Um, I thought I was mispronouncing it or something, but there's not a lot of letters to mispronounce it. Um, no. Anyway, John Wagner is the author of a very popular book, Wyoming, I-80 Wyoming Snow Chiman Trail, um, about the interstate people love to hate. Believe me, this winter we've more often hated it than loved it, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the author will join museum staff and visitors as he traces the history of I-80 and the Lander folks who helped get it built. I, for some reason, love the history of transportation and roads and things like that. So looking forward to that one as well. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, the Wind River Visitors Council, the basically who we've been talking about this whole time, has the following adventure treks lined up. At the Lander Museum, the Pioneer Museum in Lander, they're doing a cemetery tour on May 9th at 10 a.m. So they're going to meet at the cemetery gates and walk through the cemetery to learn about some of Lander's notable residents. Uh, this is free to attend, but donations are suggested. And then on the other side of the county, on June 9th at 9 a.m., the Dubois Museum is hosting the Five Mile Creek Tie Hack Trek. And so we're going to join Craig Prine, owner and operator of the Ramshorn Guest Ranch, and museum staff for a trek exploring the tie hack era in East Dunor. Visitors will see gorgeous views, tie hack ruins, and other historical artifacts from the tie hacking days of Dubois in the 1920s, uh, also while getting to visit the historic Ramshorn Guest Ranch. So the cost is $10 per person, and advanced registration is required. So call the museum, 
Dubois Museum to be specific, to reserve your spot. That sounds great. We've also got some Bailey Tire and Auto Service and Pit Stop Travel Center sponsored children's exploration programs coming up. Uh, the first two are actually Riverton Museum ones. Uh, one of them is, is rescheduled and one of them is at its original time, hopefully. So on May 9th, we are building oatmeal box cameras. Um, if you're listening to this now and you have an oatmeal box, save it, bring it in. We're going to use them. I'm going to round up as much as I can. Uh, but on May 9th from 2 to 4 p.m., we're going to learn the basics of photography from back in the day. We're going to learn how light passes through a simple pinhole lens and exposes light-sensitive paper. We'll build our own cameras, load them with photosensitive paper, and we're going to take these really unique photos around the museum grounds. And then we're going to have a room that we've turned into a dark room, so the participants will get to see right before their eyes film developing, or I guess photographs developing. Um, because of the chemistry involved, this event's probably best suited for fifth grade students on up. It starts at two and should run till about four, and the cost is about $10 to cover the materials. And as a bonus, we are going to hang and display the photos that are taken for a f several weeks. So great way to take a photo and then have it put on display in a museum. And then our next event is on May 23rd, and we are going to learn the basic principles of electricity and how electromagnets work. And then we're going to put that all together like it's 1860 and build some working telegraphs. And we'll see if we can send some Morse code messages to each other. And that's also a $10 event. It's May 23rd from 2 to 4 p.m. And so the Dubois Museum also is kicking off our summer children's program, or at least we're hoping so. Again, these events could change listen to our announcements as they come out. But as right. of right now on June 3rd at 9am, Dubois Museum is hosting our first Kids Corner of the Year, which is titled All About Bears. So you should make your Dubois, make the Dubois Museum your home for kids education in June. Each Wednesday, kids will learn about a different topic related to the Wind River Valley. Uh, kids Corner number one, All About Bears, will focus on, you guessed it, all things bears. Um, and so... Kids will be doing activities, projects, things like that for an hour-long uh, event. Please call the Dubois Museum uh, at 307-455-2284 to reserve your spot. It's $3 per kid, um, but and kids $5 and under must be accompanied by adult, but there are no, there's no charge for adult guardians. Pioneer Museum in Lander on June 6th uh, from 1 to 2.30 p.m. is doing gold panning days. So basically, we're going to be panning for gold along Baldwin Creek on the museum grounds. Weigh your treasures and store them in a gold bag that you design. Spots are limited and the cost is $4, so call the Pioneer Museum soon. Recommended ages is going to be kids 6 to 12. And then four days later, we have Dubois Museum's second Kids Corner, which is titled Kids in Space on June 10th at 9 a.m. So we'll be doing activities and uh, answering questions like, why can we see the moon during the day? Where is the earth? And how does the sun move across the sky? So we're super excited. Um, kids are the stars of this show as they find out the answers to these questions and more. So again, call the museum uh, to reserve your spot. $3 per kid. Uh, kids five and under must be accompanied by an adult, but there's no charge for adult guardians. Oh, is that why your museum's been buying up all that solid rocket fuel lately? Uh, yes, we're going to shoot a rocket to the moon, and I promise cool. no children will be on it. Oh, well, I'll still come. <laughs> okay. So anyway, those are our tentatively scheduled current events, and with that, 
We want to thank you again for listening to this Wyoming History Podcast. I am your host, Zach, from the Riverton Museum. And I'm Kirsten from the Dubois Museum and Wind River Historical Center. And we look forward to continuing this adventure to rediscover the winds with you next time. with a little more professional approach, but we thought you'd like to hear it anyway.